0: Yeah, we thought the final countdown might be a good way to start every program as we do the final 10 shows before the election. This would be the ninth show now before November 3rd. And we think it is most important for us to focus in on the fact that there is a raging pandemic killing people in the United States that has been made much, much worse by the actions of Donald Trump. We're talking serious business here. Tens of thousands of excess deaths thanks to the hapless, counterproductive policies of the Trump administration. It's going to be topic A for the next nine weeks. You know, if we are looking for a musical start to the program, let's shift from the final countdown to one that might serve as a, a campaign song for the Trump administration. Mr. McMillan? Yeah, going under by Devo seems like it would be a pretty apropos choice, particularly since Devo's lead singer, Mark Mothersbaugh, has now, after a rough go, recovered from COVID-19. Devo's lead singer actually found himself on a ventilator at one point. He's one of the lucky few who have made it back off of the machine. So actually, we're pretty sure at this point that no Devo tune will be appropriated by the Trump campaign. Although, as we say, going under might have been apropos. Also, another candidate might have been jerking back and forth, because the public certainly has been jerked back and forth. Let's start with a little follow-up here that explains a bit about some of the jerking going on. As reported on this program, Dr. Scott W. Atlas of the Hoover Institute at Stanford, a conservative institution which employs several staunch supporters of Donald Trump's handling of the virus. Scott Atlas has gained the ear of the president. Donald Trump has not liked what he's continually being told by Deborah Burks and Anthony Fauci. So he's decided to listen to Scott Atlas. In reporting on this in the New York Times under the headline, a new coronavirus advisor roils the White House with unorthodox ideas. We learn that Dr. Atlas has been one of the main people questioning the use of masks. In fact, according to the article, Trump has become enamored with Dr. Atlas's arguments on masks, which back up the president's desire to restart the economy, open schools, and move beyond the daily drumbeat of dire virus news. Yes, those viral viral news is just so sad. Let's, let's, Let's push some of that bad news away. Of course, Atlas is right in keeping with others at the Hoover Institute noted the article some Hoover scholars were early opponents of state and local government moves to shut down economic activity back in March and April, including Richard Epstein, a law professor, (laughs) not an expert on pandemics, a law professor who predicted in March that only 500 Americans would die of the virus. He must have met by the end of March, eh? No, the sad thing is he didn't. Anyway, you can bet that the Hoover Institute was one of the leading voices out there promoting the reopening of the economy, which we did prematurely after not closing it down sufficiently and not closing it down sufficiently in a timely way. The Times article notes that Atlas's embrace of herd immunity that has really alienated his colleagues. Atlas said in a Fox News radio interview in July, when you isolate everyone, including all the healthy healthy people, you're prolonging the problem because you're preventing population immunity low risk groups getting the infection is not a problem in fact it's a positive and it looks as though we can blame dr scott atlas for the center for disease control's new recommendations of a week ago atlas pushed the cdc to put forth those new recommendations that people without covid 19 symptoms need not be tested even if they were exposed to an infected person a move that ran counter to evidence that people without symptoms could be the most prolific spreaders. The Times reports that in a tense coronavirus task force meeting in which the guidelines were debated, Atlas angered Dr. Robert Redfield, the CDC director, and Deborah Burks, according to senior administration officials. And of course, as we mentioned on the program, that meeting took place while Dr. Anthony Fucci was undergoing surgery and was under anesthesia. Anyway, it seems clear that Dr. Atlas has told Trump what he wants to hear, and Trump took what he wants to hear to then direct the CDC to change their recommendations. A top-down move not based on science or medicine. And let's talk about that. The New York Times also was on the case in an op-ed piece titled, It Has Come to This. Ignore the CDC. Harold Varmus and Rajiv Shah, respectively, former director of the NIH and president of the Rockefeller Foundation, say, quote, we were startled and dismayed last week to learn that the CDC, in a perplexing series of statements, has altered its testing guidelines to reduce the testing of asymptomatic people for the coronavirus. These changes by the CDC will undermine efforts to end the pandemic, slow the return to normal economic, educational, and social activities, and increase The loss of lives. Like other scientists and public health experts, we have argued that more asymptomatic people, not fewer, need to be tested to bring the pandemic under control. Now, in the face of a dysfunctional CDC, it's up to states, other institutions, and individuals to act. Understanding what needs to be done requires understanding the different purposes of testing. Much of the current testing is diagnostic. People should get tested if they have symptoms. There's no argument about this testing and the altered CDC guidelines do not affect it. But under its revised guidelines, the CDC seeks to dissuade people who are asymptomatic from being tested. Yet, this group poses both the greatest threat to pandemic control and the greatest opportunity to bring the pandemic to an end. It is with this group that our country has failed most miserably. Consider the logic. Without tests or a highly effective vaccine, the only certain way to prevent the further spread of a virus would be to isolate everyone from everyone else. In theory, this would work, but it is untenable, if not impossible, because of the economic and social consequences of shutdowns. Tests, however, can reduce the number of people who need to be isolated, and only for so long as they are shown to be infected. If those tests were performed frequently, even daily, and widely, even universally, It is almost certain that the pandemic would evaporate in just a few weeks. The authors note that that much diagnostic testing is not feasible given the cost and logistics, and which point Radio Parallax would add, and the slowdown put in place by the Trump administration. Because testing makes us look bad. Notes the Times. It makes sense to modulate the strategy by testing those who are at greatest risk of infection and those who are most likely to spread the virus if they become infected. We can make well-informed predictions about those who should be given priority. They go on to note that testing makes most sense a few days after being in contact with an infected person or just before congregating with many others. And yes, there are other tests in the pipeline. A saliva test is being talked about, and of course, antibody tests have been kicked around for a while. We need all forms of testing. The authors of the op-ed piece say that state and local leaders should be emboldened to act independently of the federal government and do more testing. They conclude by saying that the CDC, the federal agency that should be crushing the pandemic, is promoting policies that prolong it. That means that local, state, and organizational leaders will have to do what the federal government won't. And by the way, the CDC isn't just dropping the ball on testing. Writing in the Los Angeles Times, Michael Hiltzik said, the FDA has just had the worst day in its history. Referring to Monday, August 31st. On August 31st, FDA Commissioner Stephen Hahn announced the agency was granting emergency approval of treatment of COVID-19 with convalescent plasma, a treatment scientists say has not been proved effective. The announcement followed strong pressure from President Trump, who last week issued a tweet attacking, quote, the deep state or whoever over at the FDA, unquote, for delaying treatment and vaccine approvals so as to hurt him politically. White House health advisor Anthony Fauci and other top government doctors reportedly urged the FDA not to green light the unproven therapy, but Hahn was, quote, beaten into political sycophancy, unquote, And reduced to echoing Trump's wild claims that plasma treatments lower mortality by 35 percent. That is a tenfold exaggeration of questionable data that left medical experts aghast. Hahn later admitted the numbers were wrong, but severe damage had already been inflicted on the agent's credibility. Now, using convalescent plasma is certainly something that holds out promise. I mean, if it works, it's going to be very, very useful but we don't know yet that it does work. And approving the treatment before it has been proven to be effective is a political move. Writing in Washington Post, Jeffrey Samuels said, what's sorely needed before doctors start administering plasma therapy, which can cause dangerous immune reactions, are large randomized trials in which it is measured against placebo. We would point out at this point that Anthony Fauci himself realized during the AIDS crisis that large randomized trials sometimes delayed things too long. And when in doubt, you could argue that it makes sense to get this plasma therapy up and running before you've spent a great deal of time testing it. You can make that argument. But writing in statnews.com, Arthur Kaplan notes that now that Trump has strong-armed the FDA into proving the treatment that he's calling a cure— No trials will get funded or enrolled. Sick patients will clamor for convalescent plasma and doctors will fight over limited supplies without knowing if it works, who it works for, and how to best use it. This sends up a red flag for the fall. Noted Arthur Kaplan, if Trump needs an October surprise to salvage his political future, who doubts he'd try to rush through an unproven vaccine? And speaking of an unproven vaccine and October surprise... The CDC is also now telling state health officials to be ready to distribute a coronavirus vaccine to healthcare workers and other high-priority groups as soon as November 1st, heightening fears that the agency is under pressure to approve a vaccine before Election Day. Some scientists warn that granting emergency authorization to a vaccine before clinical trials are complete could pose safety dangers and inflame anti-vaccination sentiment. Meanwhile, over at the Health and Human Services, Secretary Alex Azar insisted on September 4th that the government's November 1st deadline for states to set up a coronavirus vaccine distribution site has nothing to do with the presidential election two days later. We've been predicting on this program for some weeks an October surprise, which would surround an alleged vaccine or treatment cure for COVID, which would be announced whether it worked or not, for political gain, it looks like we were right. And and no, sometimes you hate to be right. Anthony Fauci announced that we might have a vaccine as early as the end of the year, beginning of next year. But I don't know. I don't know of anyone who believes we will have a vaccine ready by the end of October. There will certainly be no capability to distribute large amounts of it because we will not have large amounts of it by then. So. This is all politics. It's smoke. It's mirrors. It's 1972 all over again when Henry Kissinger announced on October 22nd, a week before the general election, that, as far as he could see, peace looked like it was at hand in Vietnam. Kissinger was lying, it turned out, but it sure did help Nixon win a landslide election a week later. Now, seeing a few days ago that, uh, Someone the show is in contact with was out in the Rocky Mountain States. I put posted an inquiry to him asking about the situation regarding masks. Were people wearing masks? I was particularly curious about this in the wake of the news that a Minnesota biker who attended the Sturgis rally has died of COVID-19. The first fatality traced to the 10-day event that drew more than 400,000 to South Dakota. At least 260 cases have been linked to to the rally, which featured large throngs of people intermixing without masks, not respecting social distancing. The report from the Rocky Mountain states was that wearing masks was pretty much mandatory everywhere, but that many people were quick to take them off. I wrote back to say, well, masks are not perfect, but I'm certain that's going to save a lot of lives. He responded with a query about this CDC study showing that only six percent of people, really had died of COVID. I didn't know what the hell he was talking about at that point, but assumed that what they were referring to was the fact that perhaps 6% of people had no known comorbidities. In other words, there was nothing else you could blame their death on besides COVID, pure and simple. So I started digging around to see what he was referring to. And it turns out, notes LifeScience.com, that a bogus claim circulating on social media one that purports that, quote, only 6%, quote, unquote, of the reported COVID-19 deaths in the U.S. are solely attributable to the new virus is dangerously misleading, according to infectious disease experts. This claim stems from an August 26th update from, you guessed it, the Center for Disease Control, which posted on its website, which provides a detailed breakdown of the accompanying health conditions known as comorbidities and contributing causes of death reported in people who have died of the new coronavirus in the United States. The CDC noted that for six percent of the deaths, COVID-19 was the only cause mentioned. In other words, Notes the article, 6% of the people who died when they had COVID didn't have underlying conditions such as diabetes, asthma, or heart disease, and didn't experience medical complications such as kidney failure or sepsis. But, they note, the other 94% of deaths were still caused by COVID-19. That's because many chronic underlying conditions can make a disease that a person might otherwise recover from deadly. So if you were one of these people who suspected that we've only had 12,000 deaths in the United States based on this flawed reasoning, let us, let, us, let us re-educate you. Notes healthfeedback.org. Cause of death is defined as a medical condition that triggers a chain of clinical events that leads to the death of a patient. Comorbidities are medical conditions either pre-existing or resulting from the primary medical condition that weaken the patient's resistance to injuries or disease and indirectly contribute to their death. Many patients who died from COVID-19 had comorbidities, suggesting that these conditions increased their likelihood of death. They note, for these patients, COVID-19 remains their cause of death. As I see it, the argument in this case is kind of like saying that, you know, your Uncle Bill, who had a touch of diabetes, was out playing golf last week, and he had a massive coronary thrombosis and died as a result of that heart attack. If you argue that, well, you know, he also had, you know, a little bit of diabetes and was overweight, so it wasn't the heart attack that killed him. I mean, not really. There were other factors involved. People are clearly mixing up cause of death with what comorbidities are. In its guidelines, the CDC explains that the cause of death is the disease or injury which initiated the train of morbid events leading directly to death. With COVID-19, comorbidities which are reported on the death certificate elsewhere, are medical conditions that decrease the overall health of the patient and weaken their ability to survive COVID-19. The major difference between cause of death and a comorbidity is that comorbidities do not trigger the series of events leading to the patient's death. If the disease or injury had been avoided, those patients with comorbidities would not have died at that time. Another reason we can be sure that COVID has not killed a mere 12,000 people is that a comparison of the previous year shows that we are running in the United States at an excess of about 200,000 deaths versus the year before, which just so happens to correlate to the number of deaths attributed to COVID-19. The numbers are in sync, surely because COVID is the cause of the excess mortality. It's not murder hornets. Anyway, we don't expect to convince people that wish to believe that, that, that COVID is a hoax. Such people are pretty much not convincible. What we're doing here at Radio Parallax is trying to outline reality based on facts and logic so that you will be armed to talk to friends of yours, especially friends who may live in Arizona, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, or Ohio, or Wisconsin, who will. Decide this upcoming election. You can convince just a few friends that Trump is killing people. Well, then we can maybe give him his walking papers. We're going to be joined in our second half by someone who is enlisted in such efforts to reach out to folks in other states. Labor attorney and political activist Nancy Yamada will join us after the break. But perhaps at this moment we should pause, take a deep breath, and Have a more sedate discussion with someone who's doing actual research into COVID-19. That would be medical student and medical researcher Dr. Aaron Smith, a medical student involved in research regarding SARS-CoV-2, a physician in training at the Frank Netter School of Medicine in New England who has... To his great credit, while he's studying medicine, done some actual research, which is a tall order. So, first of all, welcome, to Radio Parallax, Aaron Smith.
1: Thanks, Doug. Glad to be here.
0: All right, Doctor Smith, you did a retrospective cohort study, looking back at, uh, at the, the hospital patients that were coming in with COVID. And I guess the first question is, what did, what did you find?
1: So essentially what we found was, and we were looking at a pot of 346 patients comparing, you know, those people who were discharged and those people who were deceased and trying to figure out what are the risk factors that we can use as kind of useful indicators of those people who are more likely to die. And so the the most useful predictors of mortality of people who are, you know, and this is people who are already hospitalized for covid Turns out, not surprisingly, and, and I think a lot of people have already heard this, but it's age, and we use the cutoff of 60, COPD, uh, and diabetes. And the other interesting thing we found was that hyperlipidemia actually had a protective effect, which certainly wasn't something we were expecting to see. Although honestly, I, I kind of we theorized at the time, and all, papers have come out since then supporting this idea, but if you have hyperlipidemia, you're likely going to be on a statin and those have anti-inflammatory effects. And a lot of people have been talking about how statins can kind of help in the treatment of COVID. So I think that's the likely explanation for that finding.
0: I, I point out, we've talked about in this program, about how there's so much we still don't know. We're trying to learn about this virus and, and, and so much about what is making it deadly or not. And I guess, I guess, your research and others points out that if you're over 60, you have diabetes, you have chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, you should be more careful. And yet, as, um, well, I guess, I guess the, you, you point out in the piece that as states are easing stay-at-home orders, having written this a couple months back, the risk factors for severe disease can be used to identify most, those most likely to have a, a bad outcome. Uh, I guess my next question is, how do you think that's been going?
1: Not very well. And I think the frustrating thing is that people seem to have a hard time taking a a subtler or nuanced approach to restarting things in a safe way. I think whenever you're talking about, you know, how do we have a return to normalcy and restart the economy after a global pandemic, which is obviously unprecedented, it can't just be, you know, a single blanket solution. Um, I think that there are some people who are particularly high risk, and whenever you're approaching something like this, you have to ask kind of what can you do, you know, what are we doing and for who are we doing it? Um, and if somebody is over 60 and they have COPD and they have diabetes, I think it's it's reasonable that we take more precautions for them and insist that they... You know, adhere more to the guidelines. Maybe they have a delayed return to normalcy. Maybe even though N95s aren't, you know, kind of abundant at the moment, that those are the people who we try to get, try to get N95s in in their hands, you know? Right, right. Um, And particularly for healthcare workers also who are in this situation. I mean, I think I've seen a lot of people who are on the front lines who are over 60 and have some of these risk factors. And, you know, the COPD and diabetes is, is, was good in this model as kind of predictors of mortality for people who are hospitalized. But obviously, you know, other papers have found other risk factors that definitely shouldn't be ignored. You know, people who have history of cancer, people who sure. have hypertension, people who are obese. Yeah, I think there's a lot of things that make folks vulnerable.
0: let's talk about how, having appreciated the fact that some people are at greater risk, return to, I guess, epidemiology 1A, which is that if you have a pandemic going on or a major epidemic, testing is vitally important. After you test, you want to contact trace. After you contact trace, you want to isolate the people that are uh, likely to spread the disease. And this week, the CDC has changed its guidelines for testing. Yeah, well, uh, Let's just talk about testing. What's your reaction? And what, what's the reaction at your medical school to this new uh, guideline from the CDC?
1: It's very shocking. It's disappointing. I actually had a mentor recently say to me, actually, a few months ago when I was working on this paper, how disappointed he was in the CDC and how they he thought that they had kind of utterly failed and that a lot of the responsibility of Everything that's been going on and the high number of cases and deaths in the United States falls, you know, at least in part or even maybe largely on their shoulders. And I think at the time I was maybe being a little too forgiving or naive or optimistic. But I think this is really sad evidence. They're being influenced by not just, you know, what's the
0: best. Well, yeah, I mean, let's just say it. I mean, obviously politics is getting involved here. This is these are they're claiming The associate uh, secretary of health and human services was claiming that, oh, no, this is all being based on, you know, the doctors getting together and deciding this is what we should do. And and plainly, that's not the case. One number that's been puzzling to me uh, and everybody uh, in this is how many people are asymptomatic versus the people that are, you know, that are sick. And the number that I've heard lately seems to be hovering around 40%. In other words, four people don't come down with symptoms for every 10 that do. Is, that, is, is your sense that that's, that's what it's um, sort of headed towards, based on what you're seeing in, in, in the hospital?
1: I think that's a really hard thing to get a read on in the right. hospital. I will say that I did another study where we were doing callbacks for people who had tested positive at drive-through testing. Okay. Um, and so obviously, I mean, these were people particularly at the time, who were only getting tested because they had gotten the approval of a doctor to do it. We weren't doing universal testing at that time, I think in, in May or April. But it wasn't a small number of people on that list, even so, who were asymptomatic. I think it was maybe 20%. And so some of those people, of course, were getting tested because folks close to them had it, and that was the indication for them to go get tested. I was surprised, to be honest, that the number was that high, even in a group of people who have already been pre-screened by doctors. So I guess the answer is I'm I'm certainly not surprised at the figures. of it and around
0: 40%. But then, of course, until we start testing people who do not have symptoms in larger numbers than we have, we're not going to know this. It's like there's no way to know this if you're only (sighs) testing people you're highly suspicious of with symptoms. Right, absolutely.
1: It's interesting. Recently, somebody I knew was feeling sick and they wanted to get tested, and they called their doctor, and the person who picked up the phone basically said, oh, you know, Yale yeah. which is the, the local health care provider, isn't actually doing drive-through testing anymore, and they seem to be confused about how the process worked. And it's, also, it's, it's very surprising and sad that at this point, there are still lots of people who don't even know how to navigate the testing system, and I think when you compound that with people who are also getting messaging that it's not, in fact, necessary, it's just throwing up more barriers to people in testing. It's surprising to see that, you know, 40% of the people you're calling were toxic positive are healthcare workers, and also we found that the amount of time that they were symptomatic that they were feeling ill was longer. I think we have to do also a better job of protecting the people that are on the front lines are still.
0: We're still this Yeah. Well, we're approaching September. This virus has been on the radar since January, and there appears to be no coordinated plan yet. Well, I, I for one, I'm certainly glad you are in the trenches uh, facing this uh, in a difficult time and doing research to boot to try and uh, better shape our, our, our treatments in the future. As things go along, uh, you are certainly welcome to come back anytime and update us, Aaron. Sounds great. Thanks for having me, Doug. All right. Dr. Aaron Smith, thanks again. All right. We've got a couple minutes left before the break here, and I think we need to kind of light our hair back on fire and close with a little piece from The Economist, the August 29th issue. Talking about COVID therapies, the magazine said, politics and medicine approvals should not be mixed. Asks the article. What do a malarial drug, a Russian vaccine, and the blood plasma people who have recovered from COVID-19 have in common? All have been approved for use by governments in response to the coronavirus pandemic with little or no scientific substance to back those decisions up. On March 28th, near the pandemic's beginning, the FDA issued emergency use authorization for hydroxychloroquine, an anti-malarial vaccine which was Controversially being proposed by some people, including Donald Trump, as a possible COVID treatment. It did so. The authorization stated based on limited in vitro and anecdotal clinical data. On August 11th, Vladimir Putin, Mr. Trump's Russian counterpart, said his government was the world's first to approve a coronavirus vaccine despite a lack of proper tests. And on August 23rd, Trump announced approval of the use of convalescent plasma therapy to treat COVID-19. He described it as a, quote, very historic breakthrough, unquote, on the basis of a study, the statistics of which the head of the FDA, Stephen Hahn, got publicly and spectacularly wrong. That regulators move fast in emergencies is to be applauded, but these three examples have raised worries that sometimes they're moving too fast. The worry is, They note that hydroxychloroquine's approval was rescinded on June 15th after a series of well-conducted trials showed it had no effect on COVID-19. The worry is that the other two approaches may prove similarly futile, diverting attention and effort from more promising avenues or worse, causing actual harm. The article mentions the fact that the Russian vaccine titled Sputnik V had been given to a mere 76 people And no results from these tests, nor from any of the animal tests the Institute says it had run, have yet been published. The Economist notes that Vladimir Putin has, in other words, simply redrawn the finishing line for making a vaccine, stepped over it, and declared victory. To which they added, America's behavior is not much better. Which returns us to the notion of an October surprise. States get ready, says the CDC, to distribute a coronavirus vaccine, which so far exists in our imaginations only. Yeah, they're working on it. They may get one eventually, but we don't have one now. We're not going to have one by the end of October. Keep that in mind. Mr. McGillin speculates that when they do get around to making that announcement in October, they may say something like, you know, anyone who wants one can get one. And let's take a break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Got plenty more. Stick around.